Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You, Lord, um, because You first loved us. You truly are our hiding place. We can trust in You. You are a merciful God. You look out on all of us whenever we're turning from You with arms wide open, calling out for us to come back and take shelter in You. We praise You for that. Lord Jesus, I pray that You would speak to all of us and give us ears to hear Your Word and give me words to speak. We love You. Amen. I was still standing there when we says, okay, you can be seated because I, I just kept wanting to <laughs> sing another, another song. It's beautiful. Wish I could, wish I could play, play something like that. Beautiful violin. So when I was thinking about everything and putting together this message, and we're going to the end of the seven woes, the last sermon that that Jesus basically spoke publicly to everyone. And there's a lot of harsh kind of feeling that could come along with the seven woes sermon. And I was thinking, it is Palm Sunday that that is coming up. Next week is Easter. And then I started thinking about um, just different people in our church. And I was thinking about some of the different prayer requests that we have. And just wrestling and, and thinking about everything as a whole. And then picturing... Um, the triumphal entry when Jesus is coming in and people are are shouting out, Hosanna! Glory to God in the highest! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! And, and, and people are just full of joy and they're declaring Jesus is the Messiah, many of them. And then I was thinking about some of the different prayer requests and the, the, the hard times that people are going through right now. And I know that's probably true in a lot of different churches in, in different things, but I, I know specifically within our own body, we have people that, you know, have different medical things that are going on, um, other challenges that, that maybe they're, they're having sleepless nights at home, um, maybe going through all of this weary time and, and things that are going on, maybe even can kind of like make you question and doubt and have some fear of, of what's going on. Then there's all of us. All of us are still sinners. We're still living in this world. And so I was thinking, you know, there, there's also those of us, of course, that are struggling with sin. Some of us have hidden sins. Our, our spouse may not even know. We don't even want to talk with anyone about some of the different thoughts that we have. Maybe some of us have a little bit of our own hypocrisy going on. On the outside, everything looks great. But on the inside, we're far from our Lord and Savior. And how awesome it would be to go into Easter Sunday and throughout the week between now and then and be able to just like rejoice and, and just, just bask and just, God, I love you so much and how great you are. 
And then to think like, man, if, if we're going through some of these different things and all through different life struggles, and just thinking how awesome it would be to be able to just freely within our, in, our, in our hearts just look to God and just say, God, I, I love you. But knowing that it might be really hard at this time for a lot of us to, to, to have that feeling. And then thinking about this message and we're at the end of the, of the Sermon of the Seven Woes and just thinking, how do we do all this? And then God showing me as, as I'm looking through this and reminding me of His mercy. And his love as he is preaching this message. And God wants us to hear this morning in his message that he has a yearning cry for us to truly know him and rest in him. He really does. And, and ironically, a lot of people who are probably really going through some hard times right now, they're not here. So maybe they'll hear this message later or not, but we're praying for you. So in order for us to be able to celebrate the resurrection to the fullest, in order for us to have a clear conscience and be able to praise God and worship Him with all of our hearts, the way that He would like us to, the way that we would want to, we have to ask ourselves, we have to evaluate what, what is going on in our lives right now. Where's our hearts at? Are we loving God? Are we obeying Him the way that we should right now? Ask ourselves, do, do you know Jesus? Or should I ask, does He know you? Are you doubtful of your relationship with Him right now? Have you been obeying Him the way that you ought to? You know, it's also really likely that you're having the time of your life right now. Everything is going great. Your devotional time is good. Everything is just going hunky-dory all the way to glory. What do you say? Something like that. Yeah. And everything is great, which is good. But we still need to constantly evaluate. God, do I know you the way I should? Is there, can I be more intimate? Can I obey you more and more? And of course, the answer is yes. Because we're not with Him yet. You know, just a few weeks back, um, I was going on a run uh, from my house out to uh, Crab Park. And whenever I, whenever I go on a run, I, I kind of uh, calculate, okay, what, what's the run that I'm going to go on the distance? And I kind of set some goals for myself. I want to go this distance, and so I'm going to try to run it this fast or that fast. And so I set this goal, um, and, I, and I ran out um, Cannibal Island Road, and I'm getting over the, the last slough bridge. And I'm coming down and starting to go into the, the dirt gravel area. And there's all those trees and then the limbs that are hanging over the roadway. And some of those branches are just about 10 feet off the ground. And I'm coming over the top and I'm looking. And right where I'm supposed to run under the branches, I look up and I see a hawk. And I just stop. I just looked at that hawk and I admired it. I'd never seen one that close. I was probably about 30 feet away. My goal, everything that, that I had planned, it just went out the door. I said, like, wow, that's a hawk. And I started thinking, wow, that's a hawk. And I knew the hawk had seen me before I saw it. And it's tilting his head this way. Tilting his head that way. And I sit there and I look at him. And I think, well, 
I didn't really think the hawk's going to attack me. But I didn't really know. You know, and so I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, okay, my plan is this. I'm going to finish. I'm going to get to the beach, but I'm going to do this tactically. I'm going to hug the other side of the road the best that I can, and I'm going to sprint as fast as I can, and I'm going to hope that all goes well. I'm going to trust in the Lord. So I run and I go as fast as I can. I get past that hawk, and it didn't get me. I don't know where it went, but when I came back the other way, it wasn't there anymore. All that whole story, it's not, it's not a very deep analogy or anything, but that, that whole story, just to say that all my plans, everything that I had focused on, completely went out the door when I saw that hawk. And that's what God wants us to do today with this message. No matter where we're at in our walk with Him, in our life, He wants us to stop. He wants us to set aside our plans. And he wants us to reevaluate our relationship with him. My hope and prayer for us this morning is that wherever we are in life's journey, whatever we might be going through, to pause this morning and hear God's cry for us to truly know him. Picture God with outstretched arms crying, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all you who have persecuted me. Come, all you who have lost faith in me and trust in me. I have come to bring you life to the fullest. Only come, turn from your sin, and trust in me. Picture the triumphal entry as it's recorded in Luke chapter 19. We have Jesus. He's coming down out of the Mount of Olives. He's on the donkey and he's riding in. And there's crowds all around him. There's great commotion. There's people rejoicing in their praises. Hosanna, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're laying down his cloaks. They have the palm branches going. And there's a great commotion. There's a mixture of people, right? There's those that really don't like him at all. There's those that don't know. I'm not too sure if he is the Messiah. And then there's, of course, the Pharisees and the scribes. And and we need to be careful because we know that there's probably some Pharisees and scribes who actually became Christians, actually were saved, but we lump them all together, especially in in Scripture, that are looking at him and they're like, "This this is counterfeit. This is not the Messiah. And so there's this great commotion. People proclaiming that he's the Messiah those that are skeptical, those that definitely just want to persecute him. And in fact, the Pharisees, they go up to Jesus and they say, rebuke them. They're declaring you to be the Messiah. And what does Jesus say? He says to them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is awesome. It's awesome to picture. We, we know going through uh, the Gospel of Matthew and looking at all these different parables that there's lots of times where Jesus was performing miracles and he was doing all these uh, magnificent things, saving people, and the people would come up to him and they would say, are you the one or should we look for another? And Jesus oftentimes would just point at, well, you see what's going on here. What do you think? Who do you think I am? Well, now there's no question whatsoever. Jesus is telling them, no. I'm not going to rebuke them. I am the king. I am the one that's coming to save the lost. And if they don't say anything, even the rocks are going to cry out. 
And the reason why I wanted to go over to, to Luke isn't because of that part right there, but because of verse 41. It's recorded in Luke, but it's not recorded in Matthew. So Jesus is coming in on the colt. All this is going on around him. And it says this in verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus wept over the city. He didn't bask in all the glory that was going on around him. He didn't just say, yes, I'm the Messiah, focus on me. He wept for the city because he knew. He he rejoices when there's those of us that know him. But his heart is broken over those who do not accept him. He knows that his enemies are all around him. He knows that he's about ready to get crucified on the cross. He knows that the temple is going to be destroyed in 70 AD. He knows that there's going to be millions that are killed. And he's weeping over them. That's so important for us to hear at the end of this, at the end of this sermon of the seven woes. It's important for us to see because it sets the tone. This is our Messiah that is talking. To us here. It's so easy to hear. Whoa, 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 whoa. Bad, bad, bad. It's coming from someone whose heart is broken. Our Lord and Savior. That's before this happens. So Jesus comes in. He's crying and he's weeping over the city. And he goes and cleanses the temple. And then he begins the message in Matthew 23. And in this sermon, which we've preached over the last few weeks, Jesus basically calls out all the Pharisees and the scribes and everyone who's following in a like like manner. He's calling them out on the carpet and he's telling them, you guys are hypocrites. You enjoy all the praise that you get from people. And on the outside, you perceive, you make it look like you know me really well. But on the inside, you are far from me. Jesus exposed the condition of their hearts as being no better than the condition of their forefathers' hearts who murdered the prophets. And then in Matthew 23, 36, Jesus tells them, Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. All the sins of their forefathers would come down on that generation. The people Jesus was speaking to. Because although they were not alive during the time of their forefathers, they were alive and speaking to Jesus face to face. And they rejected Him. Even though Jesus was right before them with His arms wide open saying, Trust in Me. They were the generation that would actually crucify the Messiah. Jesus, completely aware of the weeks that are to come, aware that he was staring at those who would have him beaten and crucified, still had lament in his heart for them. You would think that at this point, I mean, how many hundreds of years, a few thousand years, Jesus giving an opportunity for salvation to trust in him, 
and now finally looking at the people who are themselves going to be the ones that crucify him, you would think that he would be done with them, that it's over, that there's no way for them to turn back, that, that he would have no care whatsoever what is going to happen to them at this point. But that's not true. Jesus laments over them. In fact, he doesn't want any to perish. God is merciful and he wants everyone and even them to repent. And if they would have, if they would have heard his message right then of all the woes and they would have said they, and they would have been convicted in their hearts and they would have said, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Jesus, I believe you're the Messiah. I want to put my faith in you and trust in you. They would have been saved even then. Our passage this morning is the last three verses of this message. Verses 37 through 39. This is the conclusion of Jesus' last public message before he goes and is crucified. So listen, listen to this conclusion. We're going to see, we're going to see a, a judgment and then we're also going to see a great hope that God leaves. Verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus concludes his woeful sermon with judgment and also with hope. And we see this hope right off the bat when he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. There's a great remorse and a love for his people right there. He's telling them, knock off the way that you're living. Saying, woe to you for doing this. Woe for this. Woe for that. Don't do those things. I'm lamenting over you. I want you to know me. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It's kind of like when he says, Martha, Martha. Or when he says, Saul, Saul. You remember that? Saul's Jewish, right? He's on his way to go and persecute Christians. He's on his road to Damascus. And what happens? God talks down to him. He says, Saul, Saul, why what? Why do you persecute me? And then God proceeds, proceeds to save him. Saves those who persecute him. Or when he says, Abraham, Abraham, in Genesis chapter 22, it's a grievance because he's going to pronounce judgment against them. And when he calls out Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that's representative of the Jewish nation as a whole. Okay? All the people that are rejecting Him. That have rejected Him as the Messiah. And as the verse states further, they are the city that what? The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Stones and kills here is an active verb. It's a present tense verb. But it also encompasses all the prophets that they have murdered that were sent to them in the first place. 
all those present, like you think of John the Baptist, and then you also think of the crucifixion of Christ, and then all the martyrs that have, have happened before us and are about to happen in the church. City that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And he continues, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Notice here, once again, Jesus declares that he is God. He doesn't stay in here and says, How often would my Father or the Lord my Father have gathered you have gathered your children together. No, he says, how often would I have gathered you? Jesus is saying, I am God. I'm the one that always was and always is. Jesus is saying, I wasn't born on earth. That's not when I started my life. I always have been. I am the Lord. I am the one that has loved you and has called out to you for all time. And then notice, how Jesus um, would have gathered them. He says, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. It's, it's a very feminine picture. Isn't that cool? It's, it's really good to amplify on this stuff, especially in today's world when, we, when they think like, oh, Christianity you know, puts down women or, or whatever the case may be. No. We have men and women. I cannot be feminine like like a woman and vice versa but God encompasses both and in his great hope in the wonderful picture of of love and protection he chooses to be pictured as a hen gathering her chicks that's awesome you think about a hen and then all the little chicks going all around and as as I need I need to picture things really like bluntly like this. So I was picturing all the little chicks going around and they pick up each little thing off the ground and they spit it out of their mouth. They're checking everything out. They don't know what's going on. Don't have a care in the world. They're dumb. And, and they're going all around and they have no clue what's danger around them. And then a hawk. I, I'm really on the hawks. In this. And then a hawk flies over. And then the chicken, the, the hen, well, the head, this is a chicken, Sees the hawk, and then they they call out, blah, blah, or whatever they do, and, it, and it's the alert. It sounds it sounds out a, an alarm, and then the chickens, and then the, the chicks, who know the hen, right? That's 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 key. They have to know the hen. Run when they hear the alarm to the hen, and the hen opens up the wings, covers up the baby chicks, and protects them. It's a sign of warmth sign of love, a sign of protection. That's God. I, I, w- I would have done that. How often I would have done that. But you would not. The prophets in the Old Testament sounded the alarm, so to speak, every time they relayed God's message to His people. Remember passages like Deuteronomy 13, 1-4, where it says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, 
and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Four, and this is really important, to see God's heart and love all the way back in Deuteronomy during the time of Moses and before. Four, the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your, and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. Sometimes Israel heeded this instruction. Many times they didn't. And whenever they didn't, God had to punish them. We need to remember that these truths, even all the way back there in Deuteronomy, this is the same thing that, the same truths that we have today. God alerts us to dangers today. We might not necessarily have someone come and tap on our shoulder that we would label the dreamer of dreams who says, hey, why don't you come over here with me and uh, we're going to worship another God. And then you're like, oh yeah, no, I'm not supposed to do that. The Bible says it and, and it's that obvious. But there's other ways that the master deceiver tries to get us to be led astray, right? Lots of times in more subtle ways. And I think one of the, one of the ways that's easiest to fall off track, that's easiest to fall away from God and, and, and get our focus where it shouldn't be and ignore a lot of these alarms and a lot of these uh, um, warnings that God gives to us is with our culture and the values of our culture. I mean, we're encompassed by our culture all around us. One of the things that our culture lifts up highly is tolerance and relativism. Okay? Our culture values acceptance of all religious faiths and ideas. Our culture frowns upon, especially Christianity, who proclaims that there is only one God. That there is only one answer, Jesus Christ. Okay. The world we live in puts tolerance and relativism above truth. And they try to convince us that our narrow views are hate speech. There could be nothing further from the truth. Because if we valued that which is false at the same level as that's what, what, is, what is true, then we wouldn't try to proclaim the truth to anyone else and then they would die and go to hell. And we might be right there with them if we start following and go down that, that road. So God, God alerts us to many things like that. We need, to, we need to be careful not to fall into traps. We could go on and on with a bunch of different areas that, that Satan deceives us, but I just wanted to mention one more that, that I think is really prevalent within the church, and that is sex, sexuality. 
It is everywhere in our culture. Our culture has made it seem like it's okay to do whatever you want, whenever you want. We've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. And we just follow after our own desires. And, and, that, and the world says, that's okay to do. You can do that. And consequently, our church is rampant. I don't know about our church in particular, but I mean the church as a whole is, is rampant with pornography, rampant with divorce. I know I've heard recently that um, maybe the divorce uh, statistics show that they're a little bit less, but what I learned with that was that's just because less and less people are getting married. They're just living together. Which is horrible because one of our greatest witnesses that Christ is faithful and that He loves us and that He will never leave us or forsake us is the fact that we keep our marriage vows. The fact that we've made a covenant with our own wife that it's a picture of Christ in the church. But if we don't spend time in the Word and heeding God's God's correction and, and His warnings. It is so easy when we're inundated with TV and movies and the songs that we listen to and the billboards and the clothes that everyone wears and everything else that's going on to be led away as a sheep to the slaughter. We need to be careful not to let these words pass right over our ears. When Jesus says, I would, but you would not. I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you did not listen and you went astray. God's message hasn't changed since the very beginning. He sounds the alarm to protect us from that which would harm us. And He tells us through His Word to put our faith in Him and obey Him. And then he'll be, we will be protected and blessed by Him. But Israel, by and large, the nation of Israel, by and large, rejected God. Israel repeatedly rejected the Lord and repeatedly brought judgment on itself. And now, they've rejected the Messiah who's speaking to them face to face. Going back to the message. They have seen Jesus perform miracles with their own eyes. They've heard His wisdom and truth. They've repeatedly been, stu- or been stumped when they tried to trick Him. Yet they still rejected Him. And therefore, because they wouldn't accept Jesus, look at what Jesus says to them next. Verse 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. The house that is spoken of here is, is, is a picture of the temple, which is also a picture of, of Israel as a whole. Or what is Israel without the temple? I mean, that is everything, right? And we know that, and it's going to be talked about a little bit more in the next chapter, in chapter 24, that AD 70 is going to roll around and there's going to be the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem and the people, and there's going to be a million people that get killed and there's going to be people dispersed all over the place. And so there is that pronouncement. Your house is left to you desolate. So we know that that is going to physically also happen. There is a pronouncement of judgment there. But it is also true within their hearts. 
as he's speaking with them right there. The temple is a place where the Jews would go to have, uh, make sacrifice and meet with God and worship Him and meet with Him. And if they're rejecting the God that they're supposed to be meeting at the temple, who are they going to meet with? There is nobody to meet with. If you're not meeting with Christ, you're not meeting with God. And therefore, their house has been left to them desolate, just like ours. If we think we know God, but we don't know Christ, we don't know God. Our house is left to us desolate. But just when it may seem that God has placed the final nail in the coffin, just when it may seem that there is no longer any hope for Israel or for any, anyone who ever has rejected God, he finishes this sermon with verse 39. Verse 39 says, For I tell you, you will not see me again. It's a good word right there, again. Until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus concludes with a word of hope and prophecy by using a really encouraging word here. There's a few encouraging words there, but the one that I was going to focus on is the word until. Jesus tells us here that there will be a day once again where his people Israel will see him again. And when they see him again will be when they acknowledge Him as Lord. And the word until tells us that this will happen by the Lord's sovereign plan. And it's not reliant upon them, those that have a depraved heart. If it was reliant upon them, the verse would not use the word until. It would use the word unless. Okay, so it would substitute it like this. Say, for I tell you, you will not see me again unless you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is not just foreknowledge by God. It's, it's, it is a guarantee that at the right time, God will lift a partial hardening of the hearts of his people Israel. Though it's hard to understand, it was God's will that Jesus would die on the cross for our sins. It was God's plan that the majority of the Jewish people would reject Him because in doing so, their rejection opened up an opportunity for the Gospel to spread to the whole world. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11 and we'll look at verses 25 through 36. Romans 11:25-36 Lest you be wise in your own sight I do not want you to be Now this is Paul talking. This is Paul talking. 
Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, which is Israel. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is speaking of the time when all of our sins will be taken away. Verse 28. As regards the Gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Okay, so this is the partial hardening of Israel. So they're enemies. They're hardening. They're enemies for whose sake? For the Gentiles' sake. For the, for the rest of the world that they may hear and know God. For your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. (laughs) This can be hard to understand. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. So I kind of think sometimes it's some practical um, application here in, in, historical, in historical sense. With the destruction of the temple in AD 70, there's over a million Jews that were killed. Then we see um, another revolt in around 131, 132 or something like that with Israel. And more and more were displaced and dispersed throughout all the world. And the message was carried with them. And the Gentiles, us, most of us in here, I believe, the Gentiles, have heard that word, have heard the gospel over time, it has been passed and has gone out into all the world until all the nations will hear and be saved. And so, within that, the Bible also says then it will also make them jealous. Once that which we have, which is the message, which is the gospel, which is Jesus Christ, and then they too will one day know God and be saved. And God makes it clear that it is by His mercy that that happens. It is to show God's sovereignty in it all so that He gets the glory over everything. It is very confusing about how God brings about all these different things together, but what is clear is that in His love, God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? 
For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Especially salvation. To Him be glory forever. Amen. So to be clear, verse 39 speaks of both Christ's second coming and also refers to salvation for all who call upon the name of the Lord even now. For Scripture says that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. For it is with our hearts that we believe and are justified and with our mouth we confess and are saved. And when we confess that Jesus Jesus is Lord and we repent for our sins, we proclaim, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. There's so many different theological themes that are debated on in this passage. And if we overanalyze them too much, we could miss the main point, which is the gospel. It is the gospel message. Throughout all of Scripture and Jesus' three years of ministry on earth, His message has remained the same. To hear the seven woes sermon, as I believe Jesus wants us to hear it, it's not to hear, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm sad, sad, sad at you. I'm mad at you. I don't care about you anymore. You are workers of iniquity. I cut you off and I don't care about you at all. Yes, there's disgust with that which is evil. But remember, there was a lament. There was a cry over Jerusalem before he even began this message. When he overturned the, the tables and stuff, when he went into the temple and said, my house should be called a house of prayer, he's getting rid of evil because he loves us and he wants us to know him. To hear this message of woes, to hear this conclusion, how Jesus wants us to hear it and wants us to receive it, is to hear him say, come to me. Come to me. Come to me. Trust in me. Put your faith in me. And I will gather you like a hen would gather his chicks under my wings. And I will protect you and be with you no matter what you're going through in your life. Even if you're my own child right now and you're going through a hard time and you don't know which end is up, trust in me. I will call judgment on your sin in your life so that you will turn from your sin and you will put your trust once again in me. That is Jesus' hope for us this morning. That has always been His hope. That is His message in the Sermon of Woes. Even though the temple was destroyed, even though the temple has been left desolate for many, for those of us that have called upon the name of the Lord that are saved now, God has given us His Holy Spirit to live inside of us. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, it tells us that our bodies are what? Temples of the Holy Spirit. And if we know Christ, our temple is not left desolate. In the last verse, verse 39, that we have in our passage this morning, where it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah, It's a quote from Psalm 118. 
So keeping in mind that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, let's look at verses 25 and 26 in Psalm 118 for our closing. Verse 25, the psalm says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So there, God, give us success. Bless us. And then an acknowledgement that Jesus is the Messiah. And then we bless you from the house of the Lord. And in the new covenant, with the Holy Spirit living in us, it would be like we bless you from within our hearts. May we as a body of believers here at Redwood Christian Fellowship take a moment to pause with all that is going on in life's journey and take refuge in the Lord by truly knowing Him in our hearts and saying, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. I bless you, Father, from all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, You've made clear that everything is by Your work. And You have held Your arms open and You have called us to Yourself. And I ask, God, that You would draw us to You. I ask, God, that You would give us desire to want You. That You would give us the hope that You have promised in Your Word. I ask, God, that we would be a body of people that run to You, that depend on You, that turn from sin, that delight in You. And as we come together and worship Your resurrection next Sunday, I pray, God, that we would be able to praise You with a bunch of joy and love in our hearts that You've given to us. For there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. Lord, would You be our hope. Use us to spread Your Word. We love You. In Your name, Amen.